Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on July 19, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me here today in the studio is Professor Bronwyn Dalton from the University of Technology, Sydney. And we're going to be talking about her research on North Korea on topics including women and entrepreneurship, fashion, media portrayals, and aid to North Korea. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to nknews.org for one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. And my guest today, Bronwyn Dalton, is an Associate Professor at University of Technology, Sydney, and Director of its Masters of Not-for-Profit and Social Enterprise Program. She is also a core member of the Centre for Business and Social Innovation. Bronwyn completed her PhD at the University of Oxford, and she has a BA from Australian National University in Canberra and an MA from Yonsei University, Korea. Bronwyn has co-authored a book on the role of NGOs in combating sex trafficking, and she has a long association with Korea and speaks Korean, and is a former member of the board of the Australia Career Foundation. Thanks for joining us today, Bronwyn. Uh, pleased to be here. So how did you first become interested in Korea? Uh, it was an accident, actually. Um, I was a high school kid in uh, Orange, which is a rural town in New South Wales, Australia, and I was studying French for my uh, final years at high school, and I applied to Rotary Club with the hope of going to France mm. to meet a French boyfriend. Oh. Yes, and then they told me, no, you're going to South Korea. I was quite devastated at the time. <laughs> Have you ever been to France in the end? Yeah, I did get there in the end. Yeah. I did get there in the end. But Sounds yes, I didn't, I didn't know where South Korea was. I had to look it up on the big atlas at, uh, on the farm at home. Was this before the Seoul Olympics? This was 1986 I went ah. over. So 1985 I was to- told this was under Chon Doo-hun. Wow, yeah, that would have been um, quite off your radar at that time. Yeah, I imagine. basically yeah. Australians knew South Korea through MASH. Right, yeah, that's right. Uh, now, how did your interest in South Korea expand to include North Korea? I did my uh, year as a Rotary Exchange student. I feel very privileged to have been involved in this country over the years because it really sparked my interest in social and political change. And I was lucky enough to be present through massive social economic transformation of South Korea. And just a few miles up the road, we're seeing the same thing. So mm. it was a natural, given my major being political, science. It was a natural part of the world to be curious about. What are your major focus points and interests in North Korea research? Well, I am interested in particular in changes in everyday life. I think that there has been dominance in the analysis and discussion around North Korea from those interested in sort of strategic studies. Yes. Uh, security studies, security, international relations. Yeah, counting, so you're looking more on the, the human level. Yeah, ca- counting bombs and counting aerials <laughs> and all of that sort of thing. I'm really actually fascinated by what, what happens on the ground. One of the most, most amazing things about having an interest in in North Korea, we can never really understand the key drivers of human nature because there's so many variables involved. We can't study humans in laboratory conditions, but honestly, North Korea is sometimes the closest thing to it. That's interesting. I, I, I think I've heard it uh, described in similar ways by other people too. That yeah, it's a uh, it's a unique place to look at how people act, isn't it? Uh, so before we get into your uh, research, could you tell us briefly about the uh, the program to bring North Korean refugees to Australia to study English? 
Uh, I asked this because one of the two North Korean women I interviewed recently for episode 28 was a person who benefited from that program. Yes, we are very proud at UTS InSearch. It's the language school of UTS. We're deeply proud of this program that has been going now. Uh, it will be in its fourth year. Mm. We have five uh, North Korean refugees study for a whole year or oh, 10 months of a year. Uh, and do intensive English language, and it's fully paid for, uh, including housing, airfares, spending money, the lot. And it's been hugely successful. We're so proud of our graduates. Ha- now have some real leaders in the community. And if I might add how I kind of pitched it to the various parties, but in particular in Korea, we really face a, a challenge or a missed opportunity at this point in time. And I, as I discussed with my Korean funders, please don't make the same mistake as Australia with our Indigenous population and let disadvantage become intergenerational mm. because the North Korean uh, community here in South Korea face challenges around employment, acceptance, and actually being a success in this highly competitive society. So if Australia can play a role in creating positive leaders, I think that will be a great contribution to the South Korean economy and society as a whole. Excellent. All right. Well, and some of them, well, one of them has even appeared on this podcast. So that's uh, clearly and now, initiative. And now working for the World Food Program, and she shares the story of when she was at her most hungry, how she ate the UN cookies. I mean, these sort of stories... Come full circle. So she's got a job since she was on the yeah, show. Oh, yeah. this is fantastic news. Oh, well done to Anne out there and they're yeah. working for the WFP. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I'll have to send her a congratulatory text later yes. on. All right. So today I want to talk about four papers that you have co-written about the DPRK. Let's begin with the oldest one first and then go through uh, to the most recent one. So this first one is called Feeding the Dictator or Making a Difference, the Experiences of International Aid and Development Agencies in North Korea, 1995 to 2005. And you co-wrote it with Kyung Ja Jong, with whom you co-wrote all four of these papers. uh, And it was published in the International Review of Korean Studies, Volume 6, Number 1, 2009. So first of all, could you tell us about your co-author and researcher, Kyung Jae Jong? I've not had the pleasure of meeting her yet. Kyung Jae Jong uh, is my colleague at UTS. She's in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And we've enjoyed a wonderful partnership, a highly productive partnership. What we really share is an interest in the role played by women in social transformation and in the context of both South and North Korea. And also Korean women in Australia as well. We've just done a paper on Korean sex workers, which is coming out as well. So, yes, she's a – but Kyungja has a very distinguished pedigree in being one of these amazing Korean women in the 70s, 80s that were at the forefront of democratisation, but women's rights and feminist movement in particular and her and a group out of Iwa University established the women's refuge Mm -hmm. system here and incest programs they were absolute game changers in terms of uh, safety of women from domestic violence in South Korea so really a good friend but a very inspirational person. Fantastic well I look forward to meeting her. Uh, Now 
in this paper at the beginning, actually in the abstract, you wrote, quote, during the period 1995 to 2005, North Korea received more food aid from the UN World Food Program and US government than any other country. But that food aid to North Korea declined steeply after 2005. Uh, this paper was published in 2009. So do you know anything about the aid trends to North Korea since then? Well, we've got sanctions now, and there's sanctions and there's sanctions, as we've learnt. And the re- the most recent sanctions actually worked because it was all about whether China was going to genuinely participate. But no, it, it received neg- negligible aid, and I just read that the so, some of the sources of aid to fund the treatment of TB have also dried up. So yeah. it's getting quite serious. It is quite dangerous, the, the fact that we're not supporting even the most basic health programs. And that's because of the link between poor nutrition and susceptibility to disease and other things, is it? Yes, but the Eugene Bell Foundation, Stephen Linton's group, as he explains, you've got to go in and go hard with diseases like TB. If you under-treat and Mm. just give lower-grade antibiotics, it builds up a resistance in the population. People exist with it, pass it on. If you don't deal with it in the ways that the World Health Organization recommend, you are actually laying the groundwork for a major epidemic. And just because it's North Korea doesn't mean that the rest of the region won't get it. Well, no, and actually, uh, yeah, picking up on that, I um, uh, have spoken to, to uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Linton, and he's explained that if you're a traveler to North Korea, even just a Western tourist, and you're in an enclosed space, say a bus or a hotel or a restaurant, with a North Korean who's carrying a drug-resistant form of tuberculosis, mm-hmm. you too can get it. In the, no one's immune to a drug-resistant tuberculosis. Yes, and he's pointed out the levels in Pyongyang and that they are the places most likely to have the resistant strain. Wow. So this is quite dangerous now. Or you, um, we really need a coordinated strategy around combating TB. Now, what was the overall impact of international aid agencies or international NGOs on the North in that period, 95 to 2005, when humanitarian engagement was at its highest? Really, it primed the pump for the explosion of the Changmadang generation. Ah. Yeah, if, if it, it provided the basis. The aid itself wasn't distributed in a way that authorities, the funders may have liked. It flowed through the system corruptly, but nevertheless it provided the raw materials with which uh, North Korea's emerging class of female entrepreneurs value-added at night and then resold again in the morning in the markets. So it was absolutely critical to the launch of a marketized economy. So that was, like, well, that was clearly an unintended consequence of this engagement, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, not, not something that the North Korean government uh, foresaw, and if it had foreseen it, it, it wouldn't have been happy about it, I imagine. That's correct. And we've done many interviews with North Korean refugees over the years, and they tell us how they used the rice in the bags marked UN mm. to make it into dock to rice cake, or how using the raw ingredients to make into fried tofu or whatever. They, those ingredients really served as the foundation for the value-adding process which led to women starting a market economy in North Korea. Are there any other enduring impacts of the aid and assistance on North Korean society that you can think of? Well, what I really started 
to take away doing interviews with these big aid agencies is that they're used to operate in the context of failed states, kind of the sub-Saharan model of aid. You go in, you're MSF, you build your own landing strip, you control your distribution channels, you dominate. And it's kind of a Eurocentric or a slightly unfortunate approach to aid. Sure, North Korea controlled heavily how it was distributed. And yes, some of it, well, quite a lot of it was distributed corruptly, but at least had the distribution networks. It it knew what it was doing in terms of controlling the flow of materials. And that didn't sit well with Western aid agencies who like to be in charge. You know, they just didn't like the fact that they couldn't replace the state. And really the aim of AIDS should be to strengthen uh, an economy and a state, not replace it. But I also remember uh, around 2005, the end of this period that you wrote about, that uh, the government in Pyongyang said, okay, we don't want any more uh, aid. We want to focus only on uh, development assistance. So if you're an outside uh, international NGO and you want to come to North Korea, uh, don't bring aid, just bring development assistance. North Korea has doesn't really need the amounts of food aid it used to, although the sanctions are now biting, because there's been a shift in the way food is produced and distributed. Obviously, the PDS, the public distribution Mm. system, has failed. But as was clear in my last two visits, and I was extremely lucky actually to get out of town. It was by accident because our bus broke down, so I could walk quite a long while in the countryside. Uh, small plot farming is now um, the norm and people are industriously managing to meet basic food needs. So really the government is about trying to invigorate a fragile economic recovery now and see development assistance in bigger projects is more important. Do we still see uh, stunting or wasting uh, or other symptoms of uh, malnutrition in North Korea today? Now, as North Koreans, it's estimated 80% of their calories come from the market. There are still, because of government mismanagement and it particularly post any natural disasters, floods or droughts, those levels go up. But overall, North Korea has never been as well off as it is right now. Mm. We've had about 2% growth um, over the last 10 years. Okay. All right. Well, the second uh, paper I want to talk to you about today is called Framing and Dominant Metaphors in the Coverage of North Korea in the Australian Media and was co-authored by you and Kyung Ja Jong together with Jacqueline Willis and Marcus Bell and was published in the Pacific Review in 2016. Uh, You wrote in that paper that media narratives often act to delegitimize, marginalize, and demonize international actors. How does this happen with respect to North Korea? As we analyzed all the coverage over, I think it was a five-year period, I really struggled to find any mention of North Korea as a country. didn't use it. It was the hermit kingdom or the pariah state or the Orwellian state or uh, all sorts of hyperbole around it. And it fell into these metaphors of, of basket case or dangerous or ruthless or cruel. Really, overall, you, you, any reader consistently exposed to these messages would totally make North Korea the other and the threat and something to be crushed. 
isn't there also a counter narrative provided by, for example, interviews with uh, defectors and stories of people who've come out of North Korea? That counter narrative is shoehorned into the dominant me- metaphors we found. So, on occasion, there are human interest stories that might try to give a human face, but even then, those other dominant descriptors creep in. And this is dangerous. If we do dehumanise a whole country, we put everybody at risk of war. It has really set back a genuine conversation around engagement. I just wonder what what the ideal of media reporting on North Korea would look or sound like. Do you have an ideal in mind that, you know, is it just straight reporting without any, any metaphors or negative framing? Is that something that can be achieved? Really bringing the human face to North Korea because it's so fascinating. I I mean, they are amazingly resilient, funny, welcoming, interesting people who are terribly kind as well. I defy anyone to spend time with um, average North Korean folk and to not walk away you know, absolutely in love with them. They're, they're gorgeous. But so, so this is the case with North and South Koreans. They're wonderful people. So, yeah, just just to get the the human side of the story is important. Of course, we here at uh, nknews.org um, pride ourselves on uh, getting at the human side of the story. We have a regular feature called Ask a North Korean, etc. It's a great segment. Excellent. Please subscribe. Having said that, are there any other media outlets that you can think of that do a good job uh, at uh, sort of fulfilling this ideal of humanizing North Korea? There's some great research being done by media, particularly those based here in the region. Of course, NK News is doing a really important job in Thank you. In, in getting to the heart and telling, debunking the fake news. Mm. We've got the wonderful International Crisis Group that has been reporting for a long time. Hello, Christopher Green. Well done. Um, then you have uh, the... Im Jin Gang or Rim Jin Gang. Rim Jin Gang. Based uh, in Japan. Yeah, now was here, but, but now moved over to Japan and good friends. All of these... Daily NK. Yeah. Your daily NK, all fantastic sources. And if it weren't for these sort of organisations, much of what we know about North Korea would would remain hidden. Moving on now from media reporting, let's talk about the third paper, which is called Fashion and the Social Construction of Femininity. I've got to slow down when I say the word, in North Korea. And was co-authored by you with Kyung Ja Jong and Jacqueline Willis and is published in Asian Studies Review 2017. So what what has been the transformation that we've seen in North Korea on how femininity is defined? There's been a significant social and economic transformation post the famine era, and women have kind of uh, changed over three periods. There was the the pre-famine period of straight out sort of Stalinist socialism, Kim Jong-il period, Kim 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 Il-sung period, and then the gradual marketization period under Kim Jong-il. And now we have what's happening under Kim Jong-un. And women's roles have changed significantly, in particular their economic roles, but also the expression of their own identity and how they seek to exercise their agency as these transformations occur. Okay. Now, you, in the paper you wrote that dress is a discursive daily practice of gender. Can you unpack that for us non-academics, please? Well, it's a way to express what and also it's, it's a form of 
everyday resistance too. Uh, Scott wrote a wonderful book about the weapons of the week and it's really at the quotidian level, at the everyday level, that North Korean women are changing that society. One big way they're doing it is going against what their elders say and what the state says about having to wear long dresses and cover up and be traditional. The heels are getting higher and higher. There's more and more bling and it's a hyper-feminine style. Uh, it's not sort of your, you know, your late two, your, your 2000s fashion in Seoul, but it's very, it, it's hyper-feminine, lots of lace and lots of paste, jewellery and so on. It's really a way of women trying to exercise their agency in the face of limited choices. You know, there's not many strategies to get ahead as a woman in North Korea. It's a deeply patriarchal state, but they are trying to dress up to the nines to hopefully secure the white-collar job and the type of marriage that will give them social rewards and mobility. They had this index a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if it was serious or uh, or jocular or a bit of both. That here in South Korea, uh, when the economy is going poorly, the skirts get shorter. But when the economy is doing better, they get longer. Sort of some sort of counterintuitive thing. Yeah, I've heard it, and I can't remember what, where the hemline ties in with the economy. You're quite right. right. But, but so in North Korea, basically, they're saying not over wearing time, mini. They're not wearing mini skirts. No. They're, they're still above the knee, but or below the but, knee, rather. But above the knee. The, st- the skirts are now above the oh, knee. Oh, the hemlines are now above the knee? Yes. Okay, so that is quite short for North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Not mini skirts, but above the knee. Wow. And a lot tighter and a lot for- more form-fitting, more sort of designer, if you like. Um, they're knockoffs usually. They try to copy the styles that they see on the their illicit viewing of soap operas and things like that. You know how you look at your 80s picture when you're at university? That's how maybe a South Korean would look at a North mm. Korean, you know, exemplar of fashion. But, uh, are but we this see- is, of course, driven by Kim Jong-un's wife. Right, uh, Ri Sol Ju. Yes. Are we seeing any pushback at, at all uh, in, for example, magazines like Chosun Yosong sort of saying to women, you know, um, go back to the older styles, don't wear short skirts? Uh, so... To, to, to make it clear, this uh, hyper-feminine style is not just a Pyongyang thing. People keep on saying, oh, just in Pyongyang they do this, they do that. No, 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 this is everywhere. And we talk to women who'd have to walk very long distances as market traders and they went without lunch, dinner and, and breakfast just to get the heels. They say that buying the shoes, they'll do almost anything. Oh, my goodness. Uh, these are the younger girls and they hide them in their sack so grandma or mum doesn't see. So it is much more about generation gap and and this Chama-dung generation. generation. So it's partly resistance to the state, but it's also resistance to a patriarchal society and an older generation. So, And they're getting tattoos. What? Yeah. Oh, tattooed. Um, eyebrows. Eyebrows and lips and sankopu, which is the double eyelid operation and other sort of cosmetic procedures as well. Now, North Korean propaganda shows us certain images of the ideal of, of a Korean woman and, and femininity, uh, women with hanbok, uh, you know, wearing a hanbok or what they call a choson or tarim. Yeah, chime uh, jogori. Chime and then with the uh, the hair tied back if they're uh, a young unmarried woman. But these are images that uh, you write in your paper. They're shaped by men. Yes, but women are now shaping their their preferences, albeit in a patriarchal society and negotiating limited choices. But they are exercising agency more than ever before.
So the fourth and final paper is called From Patriarchal Socialism to Grassroots Capitalism, The Role of Female Entrepreneurs in the Transition of North Korea. And that was in uh, Women's Studies International Forum this year, 2018, and was written by you with Kyung Ja Jong and Jacqueline Willis again. We've heard a lot lately about grassroots capitalism or marketization in North Korea in the last decade. Uh, I, I interviewed Sokil Park of Link quite recently, and we talked about their documentary called The Jung Madang Generation. Uh, but you focused in this paper specifically on female entrepreneurs, and you link it to the, the fashion as well. But why, why specifically female entrepreneurs? This is a cautionary tale for patriarchies everywhere. Basically, the very patriarchal North Korean state devoted all of its resources and security apparatus to monitor the movements of men, even in the famine when the factories had closed down. They still made all of the men report to their work units, but they never really uh, thought that the women would get up to anything. They totally underestimated them. In the meantime, these women had children that were starving and they needed to find some way to feed their children. And so free from the stricter gaze as the men, um, they quietly and earnestly went about marshalling the resources to value add to the aid that was corruptly flowing through the system to establish a market economy. So it's a pretty significant story. And the idea is, you know, if you're a patriarchy, don't take your eyes off the women. They actually end up changing everyday life. That's interesting. So, I mean, obviously not all North Korean entrepreneurs can be women, but what do you think, if you were to break it down in percentages, how, how what percentage would be women and what percentage would be men? So, sure, if you're in an elite class, you're going to have super wealthy guys. But for the many villages and communities across the country, the women are bringing home the bacon, they have economic power. Uh, they teach their daughters how to rate, how to run their market stalls. Almost sole form of wealth derives from their activities, and that is actually fundamentally changing the dynamics of the North Korean family, the North Korean community. So yeah. it's still quite relevant. So in terms, of you asked me the percentage yeah. by far. Uh, any marketplace, at least the front of shop, is a woman. Uh, you rarely see a man at a market stall. How? Has the rise of, of women entrepreneurs affected things like choice of marriage partner in North Korea? Well, marriage is a bit later. The way they talk about men is, is shifting. They, well, the, the people we've interviewed, you know, they say that there's a lot of common expressions around men. You know, they're useless or they're only good as guard dogs to guard the house or they, they run the risk of getting kicked out and there's also a very high degree of abandonment of husbands. Really? Yeah, oh. and... A, a daughter is more useful because she can participate in the market. There has been one report that there's been a decline in the preference for sons, which is, I don't know if that's sustained now in, in richer periods, but I, I wouldn't want to guess whether whether it's effective contraception or abortion, although unwanted pregnancies are very high in North Korea due to the absence of accessibility to contraception. So would you see this then as a as a wider shift in power structures between genders in North Korea? I think it's significant because people live the everyday life. I don't see it at all uh, replicated any sign of any significant change in the status of women at the elite level mm -hmm. or politically or in any civil service capacity. Um, but what it does, apart from change the economic power of women, women now more than ever 
have the ability to talk freely and gather with each other. They have the first exposure to information. They run a lot of the brokerage services of helping North Koreans get work in China as factories or arranged marriages or defect or whatever. They run a lot of the drug running. So they get exposed to more information, they share information, they form networks. The key to running a cult is atomization and control of people. But if people can start to gather in groups and exchange information, now there's been a huge penetration of um, telecommunications, not necessarily linked to the outside world. But one of the most common conversations now, and there's a lot of landlines now in Pyongyang, but across the country, women are on the phone first thing in the morning to set the price of rice, which also sort of serves as their benchmark for the pricing of their products. And they find it because they want to know what the price of rice is in, in China. So, you know, it's like guys checking their shares in the morning. Women check the prices of things and the whole economy kickstarts from there. But they all talk to each other about that. And maybe they might just be talking about some other things too. Is this, do you see it as a sign of possible cracks in the North Korean system? To be honest, North Korea will change at that everyday life level. But under the Kim cult, even though that cult is fading, what I see now is a move from a mix of the persuasion and the fear to much more of the fear. The cult has faded now. In fact, the the interviewees talk about the system being non-socialism. They don't say capitalism, but non-socialism mm. is a very common word among North Koreans now. And they are individualists. It's every man for themselves now. Your whole life depends on your ability to not memorise the works of Kim Il-sung, but to uh, make money, to, you know, be a business person. But, don't but people... whilst the regime is there, they'll crush any signs of collective action. But don't people still have to spend every Saturday, you know, doing the the Senghwal Jongcha, uh, sorry, Senghwal Chunghwa, the 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 ideological studies and the self criticism and the criticism of others, just you know, the whole day. Not if of... you've got market work to do, you bribe and get out of it. You can bribe and bribery is a huge tax, and that's the biggest complaint. They weren't talking about the. The, the famine so much or they, uh, the defectors feel much more betrayed about the um, re-denomination of the currency. Mm. That really hurt because they are traders, capitalists themselves. But now the bribery, they're talking like people who want to make money. They feel quite put out by the amount of, of corruption. But no, everything, you know, you're, if, you, if you're busy doing a deal, you pay somebody and you get out of it. You also mentioned in your paper public protests by women against crackdowns on women traders in marketplaces. Uh, look, there was a couple of reports in Good Friends and so on. I don't want to characterise this as any organised collective action. And I say while well, the Kims are in power, but actually... This is kind of a higher order thing. I, people might disagree with me, but really North Korea only exists because everybody else other than North Korea wants it to because it's cheaper. If we adopted an international posture the same way we did with apartheid, it would eventually fall. If there was support for a diaspora and a fifth column and all of those sorts of things. Government in exile. Government in exile, all, all of the stuff. Like, like like what the international community did for the National Congress Party, the ANC, the, the African National Congress. If it provided legit, legitimacy and resource and overall positive support for change, then it would. So what are some things that we as outsiders and, and non-governmental actors can do to help the people of North Korea? Engagement, visits. Every time uh, North Korean people are exposed to meet 
and learn about the West, there is fundamental positive changes and vice versa. If uh, Westerners get to know North Korea, we move to a safer world. Basically, the message is make love, not war. Uh, now, for this and, and for other papers, you rely a lot on interviews with North Korean refugees or defectors, whatever you want to call them. But how reliable are they as informants from your experience? Well, actually, you've got to be very careful. Uh, Kim Sok Young at uh, Iwa University is one of our collaborators, and uh, we have a grant together. She was in the Ministry of Unification for many years and been to North Korea 27 times, I think, and been trained in the very specific arts of, uh, in, I don't want to say interrogation, but that's what it was sort of thing when when, when, when dealing with uh, North Korea's when they first arrived at Hanawon. And first of all, you've got to establish that they really are North Korean, not maybe trying to get access some of the welfare uh, benefits by being, you know, ethnic Koreans based in China, those sort of things. There's that danger. But what we've seen is the emergence of a kind of a cottage industry of being a professional defector fueled by the expectations of some of the Korean churches. They've found that the more extreme and, and grouping a story, particularly that involves a road to Damascus and redemption and seeing Jesus whilst being a North Korean opens the pockets of the parishioners or, or the congregations and North Koreans have learnt that that's a road to accessing resources. So there's all these other variables in play that lead to exaggerated accounts and even... I don't know. If you say a story a certain way, you kind of start to remember it that way. Mm. Um, we've seen this a few times with, with very well-known um, North Korean refugees and their accounts that have been found to be slightly inconsistent. So I think we control for it pretty well. We do a lot of testing around their um being genuinely North Korean, but also we're not trying to focus and gain the um, sensational story. We're just wanting to know everyday life and those changes and things that I don't think invite the sort of elaboration and exaggeration of, of their accounts. Okay, no, last question. What will you research next or what are you researching now? I think that really now is to look at the rise of mafia cop capitalism. I think that the role of the oligarchs has been crucial in leading to the Kim-Trump summit. The social contract between the Kim regime and the leadership has changed. Before it was, you know, just blind leadership, but now the social contract is, yes, you can remain, you can have free reign being the uh, dictator if you deliver economic growth, if you look after our economic interests. And that's why I think that... Um, while Kim has factored in the market into his governing strategies, I can see those oligarchs becoming more and more dominant in how the show is run. What percentage of the overall North Korean population would you say belong to this, uh, you know, the sort of... One percent. ...crony mafia oligarchs? There's one percent, is yeah, it? No, no more, more than that. Yeah, yeah. And they're the ones it's who same are... Same as Australia and everywhere else, top one percent. Right, and so, okay. And so they're... Uh, uh, the sort of the, the crucial pillar upon which the the Kim system rests, is it? Yeah, and like other post-socialist societies, there's been a transfer of state-owned assets, state-owned wealth to what were probably very senior people in the security apparatus in particular. 
you know, KGB types do very well with the transition to capitalism because they get first, they get to cherry pick these assets. So now they're kind of privatised mines and privatised other resource industries and the big money making industries have now essentially transferred uh, ownership to the hands of these private individuals who want the sanctions lifted, who want to sell all of the, and it's a uh, quite a rich in terms of resources, a resource-rich country. They want to get on with making money. Mm. And they're saying, they're signaling to their leader, hurry up and and uh, make sure that this economy keeps on growing. Now, how can people follow you or your work? Do you Twitter? Do you have a blog? Where can people find out more? I tweet at Bronwyn Dalton one and you can contact me. Or you just Google my name. I'm easily contacted. My details are with the university, University of Technology, Sydney. Yeah, and... I pop up now and again. <laughs> <laughs> you do indeed. Well, thanks very much for joining us today in the studio. Thank you for asking. And don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean news, research and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And please send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions too podcast at uh, nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News subscription, so please review us after listening and you might win. And share this podcast with others, whether you like it or not, so we can reach 5,000 subscribers, uh, uh, listeners, by the end of this year. Thanks and listen again next time. (laughs) 